I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Rick Kelly. And we're the Three Musketeers <laughs> at We Love to Watch. We Love to Watch wonders, hey, the fuck is a musketeer? Uh, hey Pete, hey Rick. Hi. Hey. We are like the Three Musketeers. Now, um, as people who are very familiar with the story, um, as all of us are, who, who, which one are you? Name any of their names that's not the Chris O'Donnell uh, I know this. I know this. Uh, Pythagorean? P- Porthos? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> Aramis. Aramis. Aramis? Mm-hmm. Are you guys looking F- at your notes? Fam- no. No, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head. I would and never. Famous would never Amos is the last one, right? Got it. And then Chris O'Donnell plays, I believe, Dario Argento? <laughs> no, he plays, he plays D'Artagnan. And the only reason I remember that is because I kept referring to him as Fartanian because he stinks. He does stink. But yeah, where we love to watch for a movie podcast, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we can compare and contrast. And we're in our third week of Disney back in the action where uh, Disney uh, in the in the uh, late 80s, early 90s had a renaissance, not just in animation, but in their live action movie division. And one of those areas that they sort of put all their marbles was in kind of a mini action genre. They had other ones, which we've talked about uh, both as episode coverage and during this month, like sports and animals. And we're kind of charting their, uh, their big hit that they had with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids back to when they kind of lost the thread again pretty quickly after that uh, with some um, action uh, movies that didn't quite work out. So this is our third week. We've done two really good movies. Uh, I think uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, Peter and I both enjoyed quite a bit, although uh, maybe not an all-time classic for us. Uh, the Rocketeer, very different story. Definitely one of the, I think, peak examples of live-action 90s Disney. Hopefully that's what we said about it. We haven't recorded it yet, but I have watched it, and it fucking rules. That is um, what I will say about it when we Good. That, that is what we have said that. last week. We'll say for us recording this. Um, and now we're on a time where it actually takes a little bit of a turn. It takes a sharper turn than my memory of this movie. <laughs> where it is, it's just not very good. Uh, but I thought it was better. I uh, This this is maybe one of the first times I can remember where I rewatched a movie that I gave kind of a nostalgia letterbox rating based on having seen it a few times as a kid and that letterbox rating upon rewatch got murdered uh it went from what did you give it before yeah four stars yeah i mean i I like this movie (laughs) it is not not a a four-star film mama mia got four stars here we go again because that's a good movie this went down to i think one and a half or something but Mm. um the, yeah, we're doing 1994's Three Musketeers, or 1993's, sorry, Three Musketeers, uh, and this kind of marks, I think, oh shit, we don't know what we're doing, and uh, we're going to get to, we really don't know what we're doing in a movie that I think actually holds up better, uh, at least just for uh, weirdness, is Tall Tale next week. But for now, 
Rick, this is kind of... Rick Kelly's our guest. I'm going to introduce him a little more in a second. But I feel like this is the year of sequels for you. You've been on the show many times. You're one of our favorite guests. We've tried even a spinoff podcast with you. Uh, didn't get picked up by the network. <laughs> but, but very, very popular show. A, lot, a cult fan favorite. Yeah, uh, cult we favorite. Like to, we, like to, we like to say. Or sorry, let me actually back up. So in our first year of existence... You joined us on, I believe, two episodes. You joined us on um, Nosferatu, uh, the original 1922 F.W. Murnau movie. And then this year we did uh, Herzog's Nosferatu, the vampire. And a, kind of a sequel four years later. And a also in our first year, uh, which Rick. we, I Thank believe, you. recorded. The, sorry, what? Uh, Rick said screaming. It's a oh. screaming. Screen make, sorry. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. That's, it's important. I'm sorry. I, this is my formal apology to you, Peter. I'm very sorry. <laughs> screen make. Um, uh, I'll be joined later at the podium by my wife and my kids as I <laughs> as I apologize uh, and resign as host of, of We Love to Watch. Uh, but uh, in our first year, and I think, funnily enough, I think we recorded it uh, either right after the election or right before the no, right before the election because it was a week late because I couldn't edit because I was just sad, which is really sad. Uh, but you joined wow. us for a movie, a nostalgia pick in November four years ago. Uh, on uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's really something. I didn't know there was this whole uh, this mirror. Happening yeah, here. yeah. A- anytime we come up with this stuff, it's it's always pre planned. It's never by just sheer accident. Yeah, you didn't yeah. give me a you didn't give me a choice for this one. You just said, "Hey, do you want to do the three musketeers?" And now it's now I understand. Yeah, yeah. And it, and, and I didn't put a question mark at the end. I just said, "Do you want to you... do three musketeers?" Like as in like you want to make you want to do the easy way or the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really asking, do you, want... do you want to get punched in the mouth? <laughs> do you want to not be on the show or do the three musketeers? <laughs> um, but. Uh, I, I kind of had jokingly, as we talked about recording this episode, before I rewatched it, referred to it as kind of a uh, companion piece to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, mainly because I remember the Brian Adams attempt at a love song. And I shouldn't just say attempt, like it was a huge hit. Smash, a, yeah. Smash, smash hit. Not quite everything I do, I do it for you, smash hit, but still a smash hit. Upon rewatching this and having watched it in somewhat close proximity to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because we did do it on the show a couple years ago, man, this really was a just a very clear attempt to how do we cash in on that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves <laughs> magic? And <laughs> yeah, I would say that, like, down to how they decided to do casting, what they thought was important to talk about, how sexy they decided to be, right. <laughs> like. Uh, it really is a well. We can't just make a sequel to a property we don't own. What is the closest thing to a sequel to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? I guess the Three Musketeers. <clears throat> yeah, However, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to talk about it, Aaron. But those uh, those the dueling action figures for the two movies was oh uh, we was oh we we are going to talk about huh, all right. it because my. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, I think most of us enjoyed rewatching. The three of us at least enjoyed rewatching. Probably didn't live up to our childhood memories of it, but said, you know, hey, there's a lot of good here. There's some iffy stuff. Enjoyable watch. And I think I think our thesis for this is going to be everything that Robin Hood Prince of Thieves gets right or at least like gets okay. This movie fucking fails at. This movie gets almost everything it's trying to do wrong. Um, and it tried to, it just, it's like a weird 
funhouse mirror reflection of something that still kind of works, worked at the time, kind of still works today. And this is just, uh, oh boy, guys, like, <laughs> this is like so much worse than I remember. And I'm, I, I do want to talk about the action figures because I kind of want to compare, like, here's what Robin Hood did. And here's what Three Musketeers tried to do to emulate that. And how funny it is it fails at every single one of those things. But we're getting well ahead of ourselves. I've talked a lot about Rick. Rick, uh, if you haven't listened to the 10 or 12 appearances or the the uh, short-lived canceled by Fox, I think uh, the episodes we had. (laughs) Yeah, Fox canceled it. Um, We had other episodes that we recorded that you've never heard because they were replaced by Family Guy reruns. It was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's brutal. It it's a brutal. tale, tale as old as time. Yeah. Uh, but Rick, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, sure. Uh, my name's Rick. I uh, you met you guys, I think, the way that a lot of people on the show did um, in line at CVS, probably. Um, <laughs> CVS, very funny. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, the Dissolve, through the Dissolve, and uh, used to do some film writing. Haven't done it in a while. Now I mostly focus on um, on being on your show. That's my main thing <laughs> these days. You're more of a hermit robot than a Luddite robot these days. Yeah. Yeah. I just hang out and wait for you to call. <laughs> let's let's just kind of get into it a little bit with this before we actually get into the plot of the movie and stuff like that. Let's frame this up a little bit of our experience because I actually had a lot of experience with this movie because I was I was chasing that like affinity for like hey Robin Hood fucking rules. Um, and that was, I don't know if you guys had like, I think we talked about this in the Robin Hood episode. Like Robin Hood was one of those, calling it a property is like a weird thing to say, but like, I was obsessed with the Disney movie. I was obsessed with the rock, you know, the Kevin Costner movie. I was obsessed with the, um, Errol Flynn. I was about to say the Errol Morris. (laughs) Different Robin Hood movie. (laughs) Errol Morris is much more about capitalism. (laughs) Swashbuckling. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, But the the Errol Flynn one, there was like a a Disney one, a live action one from the 70s. There was a PBS one. Like I I was just obsessed with Robin Hood. I loved the story. Um, They made good action figures as a kid. They had swords and bows and arrows and a lot of other stuff like that. Or or just pretending to play Robin Hood. Um, And I, you know, I think Robin Hood, at least as a as a morality play for kids is not a bad thing to kind of get latched onto. And that idea of like, you know, um, not to get into too much of how we were born, but my parents didn't have any money. I thought it was bullshit that other people had more money. And I liked the idea of robbing from the rich and give like, that was a good, like, I feel like that's you a were good, right. Like <laughs> you were right. Yeah. I, yeah. You but got I, to but I, a different path and you would get to it later, but you know, it's the same path. You know, it did feel like bullshit that just other people, it's just, I guess it's like an easy morality tale for kids to understand. Like this guy's an asshole. Uh, the sheriff comes and steals from poor people that can't have food. Here's a guy who's trying to help people less fortunate, uh, eat or, you know, take what they earn or whatever else it is. So, and, and like a lot of kids who gets obsessed with like a thing, I was looking for more things that were like that, that had, you know, swords. And I think that kind of like thing of being a noble hero. And so, uh, you know, some other things I latched onto that were not quite in that vein, but like Peter Pan was really big swords, pirates, yeah. um, being, you know, being told to be a grown up, which in this case was like, you know, this kind of weird responsibility where you yell at your kids was bad, like the the darling's dad in the cartoon and stuff. Um, or Hook, 
And so, like, Three Musketeers was kind of always on the periphery where there wasn't as easy of a, like, you know, there's not, like, a Disney Three Musketeers thing, but it, like, it seemed like something I should like. And so, when this movie came out, I was 10 years old. I saw it in theaters. And then, like, had it on video. I didn't watch it as much as some other things, which should – because I had easy access to it. I believe we owned it. You know, you don't necessarily have that that uh, thing as a kid, the regulator that goes – is this, do I love this movie or do I just like watching a movie? <laughs> um, and the fact that I had easy access to this, but didn't wear out the copy, like, like Hook, like Robin Hood, like, um, even stuff like, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla probably should have told me that I didn't like it as much as other stuff. But yeah, my memories of this were extremely fond. Um, I, you know, it was my first experience, I think, seeing most of these actors. Um, but I, I had a sense that they were, like, especially, like, Kiefer Sutherland. Like, I just had a sense from, like, all the marketing I read in, like, Disney Adventures magazine and stuff like that, that he was a cool person that people thought was cool. And, I, you know, there was just so much of this that I was theoretically invested in. I thought that this was going to be, okay, this is going to be a little silly. Hey, Oliver Platt's a three musketeer. Like, I just wasn't expecting it to be as bad as it was. So it it really was, I think the first time we've ever done on this show where I got the, you know, that the nostalgia audit came back as a real audit where it's like, you owe money on this. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I, I am curious. Uh, I think this is Peter's first time seeing it, which I am excited to hear just generally what was his experience watching this for the first fucking time in 2020. But uh, before we do that, Rick, do you have any, history with this movie no and it's actually funny because uh we're calling it a property i don't know a better word for it but i was trying to think when we were chatting about it um in the run-up to this where i even know the three musketeers from like i don't besides like the candy bar and like the general <laughs> like notion of them because i haven't read the books or yep. the, the the book the d'artagnan trilogy i guess uh i haven't uh i've now seen the um Douglas Fairbanks one because I watched it yesterday. Oh, okay. And uh, but apart from that, I'd never. They're just like this cultural fixture that you kind of know. Where you but, know the the slogan, "All for yeah. one, one for all." Yeah. yeah, and you know that there's there's three of them, and then a fourth comes, and you know they all have distinct personalities and sword fights, etc. But yeah, so I did not ever see this or any of them. Um, I was like fourteen or fifteen. I was fifteen uh-huh. when this came out, so I think I w- it was a little past. Like Young Guns had come out several years before that, and Young Guns two maybe the year before it or two years I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess so, there was a joke that I didn't get at this time that people were calling this Young Swords because Sheen and Sutherland were both ex- precisely. Yeah, and so I liked those movies. I liked Young Guns particularly because I was like eleven, and that's like the target audience. So I think like had it been a couple of years, had this come out a couple of years earlier, it would have yep. made it would have been more in my thing. But by that time, I was not. I was not interested. Uh, so, no, this was a first viewing for me. And like you, I thought it was bad. <laughs> so bad. So, uh, and Peter, did you, did you ever read the book? What, did you have any familiarity with Three Musketeers as a story? No, no. So, uh, as uh, the title of this episode suggests, uh, I, uh, I, I still, after seeing multiple <laughs> Three Musketeers films, I still don't really know what a musketeer is. 
I'm still not sure what like what the story of the book is, and I've read the book. We'll get into that, but yeah. but yeah, um, I I I, uh, I had never seen this before. Um, I think I'm a little more positive than you guys, just because it it was like I was just charmed by the like swift pacing and the adventurism of it. But like, oh, this movie is is uh, uh just a big old sack of shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not that bad. Yeah, no, that it's, sounds. It's that I like, like that you're. That, hold like, on, hold on. What do you think child? that we think it is? If you're like, I'm more positive than you guys, but this movie's a big piece of sack of shit. <laughs> it's, it's both like because I find it to be a, a comp a, in many ways like a competently produced film. Like, I don't sure. It's a Michael. I don't, Kamen, I don't think that <laughs> the Michael Kamen score is lovely. The photography sure. is at times very beautiful. Um, the, a lot of the fights, like the sword fights and like the scale of the fights is actually pretty good for what is, you know, it doesn't have obviously have the directness of like, you know, uh, other, uh, period pieces, but it is supposed to be a family film. So obviously it's not going to be this like bloody rousing adventure, but like, I don't know. I was, I was, I was mostly charmed by the, I was mostly charmed by the, the overall production and, you know, certain character dynamics, but like. All of that stuff does not matter a wink when the main character is this void of smug charm that just, like, <laughs> devours everything around him. And the movie refuses to lay groundwork for the most important relationships in the whole fucking movie. Like, it, it, it's it's a movie that I have a lot to admire about it, but it's all kind of, like, stuff that is irrelevant. It's like a very pretty house that's falling over. <laughs> Yeah, I would have. Uh, I really wish um, I had gotten a chance to see the Richard Lester version. Um, and there's a sequel to that, Three Musketeers, Four Musketeers, that came out in the seventies. Um, I actually Which is saw canonically um, correct. Okay, it's it's there's four of them. Okay, yeah, I that was that was confusing as a ten year old. Like, where's why is there this fourth one on all the covers? Three Musketeers um, <laughs> and their friend, and their and their and their light and their. Uh, Traveling companion. It's like that fucking Mr. Show sketch. (laughs) Uh, uh, Two musketeers and And two companions. We don't know. We don't know which combination. (laughs) Musketeers and companions. I'm just really worried about the musketeers and how they're going to fare after Rochefort made them burn all their towels. And, you know, come to think of it, I'm also concerned about the musketeers, two companions. (laughs) Uh yeah. Uh we're I'm not sure who is protecting the king, whether it's the musketeers or the companions. Actually, in this movie, I'm not entirely sure who the king was for most of it. Um, but yeah, this uh but I I, fancy man. uh, Yeah, I know. He's a little fancy guy. (laughs) Little fancy man. He uh he has been cursed with the worst wig. Oh, I, I didn't know if he had a prosthetic. Like, I'm like, oh, does he have a prosthetic? It's period like, accurate, fi- right? Didn't all those guys wear, wear fancy-ass French r- wigs and they were all, like, bald under there? He just... This is a movie they made with people who should never be in period pieces. And it just... Uh, besides Tim Curry. Tim Curry's great. Uh, as is Re- Actually, I kind of like Rebecca De Mornay in it as well. But we'll get to that. Um, uh, yeah, so I have not seen the Lester version. I have seen... Lester's uh, Robin and Marion with Sean Connery as like an aging Robin Hood, which is really good. So I, I, I almost watched it before this because I I can't th- I don't think I've seen another cinematic version of the Three Musketeers, but I did read the book. So when I was in like um, it was after I saw the movie, it was like fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I forgot when exactly, but it was when Walmart had those like ninety nine cent, and sometimes they'd be two for one, like every classic book that you could think of. 
And my parents just like, it was 50 cents and they bought all of them. Um, and I was like a very avid reader at that age, especially because TV was so limited. So when I wasn't reading like Star Trek novels uh, from the library, I was going through as many of those as I could. And the problem with that is that there's just some stuff that like, no matter how committed of a 12 year old <clears throat> you are, the the writing in the book does not match something that keeps your attention. And I'm not here to debate whether it's like a good literature or not, if it's impossible to read. And maybe as a 37 year old, I would get more out of it. Like we, we talk about Lovecraft being challenging to read and finding the, the right way to do it. Except he was like a bad writer. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know uh, what Alexander Dumas reputation is uh, right now, but the, uh, I, I remember I read the whole book. It was like 700 pages, but as I was telling Rick, like it was one of those books where I forced myself to get it through. And I, at some point I was just reading words until I got to something that was mildly interesting. So I walked away from the book, quote unquote, reading it, having no recollection of any fucking thing that happened right. in it. Um, and so and it's a long book. It is like six or seven hundred pages. <clears throat> and yeah, it's I still feel like I don't quite understand like, I understand the simplified version from this movie. <laughs> I was going to say, well, the good news for you is that this movie bears almost no resemblance to the plot of The Three Musketeers. Well, yeah, that, but I guess that's my question because it – we'll talk about it when we get into specifics. But there's so much of it that's like, okay, how does this get stretched out more? <laughs> uh, and again, I'm the only one of the three of us that have read the book. So theoretically, I should be able to answer. Let's talk about how they tried to copy Romney Prince of Thieves and then we'll get into the movie proper. I think the first thing they tried to clearly copy from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is unconventional casting. Like, there was a lot of jokes of Kevin Costner being a Robin Hood. He's, I don't know if he's, he's, he's not good at playing Robin Hood, but Kevin Costner in general, I think, uh, maybe this is a controversial opinion, is uh, very magnetic to watch as a leading man. Like, he just has something ineffable about him that makes you want to watch him. So I think even though he's not a great Robin Hood, he is a good hero in a movie, and that worked for him. But you also had like Christian Slater. You had, um, you know, the you know Alan Rickman's great in it, but he was kind of seen as like a modern villain, you know, in a suit post Die Hard. Sure. Um, and all these other like examples of this kind of like surprising casting. And somehow, even though there's a lot of people that are kind of a little bit laughable in their parts. It kind of all works and gels together into a tone. And that, that has to do with a lot of other factors. Here, they tried the same thing. And the Three Musketeers, if we didn't say, the three Three Musketeers are Oliver Platt, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, uh, and then as uh, the uh, Dario Argento, uh, Chris O'Donnell who is the worst actor on the face of the planet, judging just by this movie. He he was a pretty hot property at the time, though, because he had just come off uh, Scent of a Woman, which was like his star-making role, I guess. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, they tried to get Johnny Depp and – no, not Johnny Depp. Sorry. They tried to get Brad Pitt, who turned it down. Hmm. Uh, and they tried to get the one that uh, most was interesting to me it was uh, Stephen Dorff. Yeah, those um, both would have been much better. But yeah. Well, those two still have careers of some sort. <laughs> and Chris O'Donnell, I think he might be on a CSI or an N- NCIS or something. But, yeah, um, uh, CSI, Dubuque. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's really, he's really bad and it doesn't really work. And like, I think some of the other casting choices are more fun. Like Tim Curry in his kind of like hammy villain role is just fun to watch. <laughs> if um, they ever gave him anything funny to say, that yeah, would be better. He gets like but... one moment where he gets to do a, like Tim Curry, uh, yell suddenly. That's so much fun, but it really has to carry the whole, you have to ho- hang his whole performance on that hook. Right. And then, uh, yeah, uh, there's a character who you think might be important but is gone for – I had to ask Rick if the person ever showed back up because I must have blinked. Uh, and that is uh, the star of Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, Julie Depley. Uh, yeah, the, she's actually she's actually well cast because she's the only um, real French person in this movie. <laughs> There's when she's uh there's one moment like right when we first meet her where she says I don't even know what the line is but she says something and her eyes light up and I'm like man I wish this movie was about Julie Delpy. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the three musketeers it could be the one Julie Delpy. This that is a great. classic this is a classic Hollywood style thing like casting a a, a couple incredibly overqualified women for their cuz Gabriel Anwar yeah. is, is also uh you know yeah. older sister mm-hmm. and the queen casting some incredibly overqualified women for thankless romantic roles um, i mean she julie delpy right in the it's right in the middle of uh the kieslowski three colors trilogy so it's yeah. like blue then the three musketeers and then white and red one <laughs> well, uh de mornay is great in this movie i think she's actually one of the best parts she doesn't have that much screen time or that much to do but she just uh she, this same year she gets or might be the year before, or the same year, she gets nominated for an Oscar for her hand yeah. that uh, rocks the cradle. Yeah, but I'll yeah, say was, though, mm-hmm. like uh, these these uh, but Hollywood movies are are pretty good about keeping femme fatales in there because femme fatales are easy to to work into a uh, you know a, a sort of regressive man's mind, which is like uh, you want to fuck her, but you also want to kill her, like that that kind of image uh, of like a beautiful woman, but also she'll ruin your life. Like that's kind of that's kind of an easy construct for a sort of misogynistic backward system to 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 fit uh, Rebecca with Mornay in, and that's why she's actually fairly well sketched out and has a lot of space to breathe in this movie. Yeah, uh, but um. Uh, young woman with feelings, uh, you know, uh, the, the screenwriters had no no fucking idea what to do with a, a Julie Delpy. They didn't know no. how to write uh, a young woman in love, so they just didn't do it. They didn't know how to uh, <laughs> infuse any drama into her life, so they just didn't do it. Um, and like, She's it, gone for the last hour of this movie. It, yeah. And then there's a very charming scene with her and Gabri- Gabrielle Anwar um, yeah. where they're like in a they're like sitting around the tub like having the, the bath scene yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's it's highlighted by or sorry it's 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 utterly drained by two two uh, factors one chris o'donnell is just a a vacuum of charm um he's just this <laughs> this smug awful awful performance um and two they there's no lead up to that that was written for her, or at least maybe it was written, performed, and then cut. Um, but there's no there's no lead up to to that moment. It's just sort of, you know, she has she exchanges exchanges furtive glances with a young man on the road, and then all of a sudden she's like, "I'm in love with a fugitive." <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like I yeah. know, like young love is fickle, but like this is a movie. Like you know, they make movies just about love. Like there's templates for this shit. Like. <laughs> you, can, you can do you can do a love story you don't have to be a, a shy about it 
Yeah, uh, 100%. And, and, but that's the other thing. Like, this, so this movie, like Robin and Princess of Thieves, is trying to action and edgy up the content as well as the cast, right? So Robin and Princess of Thieves, we, we've talked about it a lot, was that, you know, they don't have the dumb – I shouldn't say dumb. I, I like it in the actual thing. But they, they don't have what they considered a, a relic of a lesser time part where he dons a goofy disguise and wins the tournament – Instead, they have like a big save the people from getting hanged explosion scenes, right? They have a cool fucking ass Robin Hood fort and they use gunpowder and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, it has a lot of explosions. I have to imagine that the Alexander Dumas novel, Three Musketeers, set in the 1600s did not quite have this many explosions. (laughs) Yeah. So, so here's uh, like one thing I would, uh, I would beg to differ on a little maybe is like the, the question of edginess. Cause actually it dulls a lot of the edges, um, to make it a D- PG Disney movie. Well, what it does, but does it the, like, I think it this- does because for instance, Rebecca de Mornay's character is not beloved by Kiefer Sutherland in oh, yeah. the novel or the, um, earlier adaptation. She actually is only with him for his money and then he hangs her and leaves her dead from a tree oh. but she survives and swears vengeance on him it's more like that god uh, here they her, make it sounds sweet yeah here they make it like a very very different relation so it's kind of like that but they do throw in the explosions that's what we get instead yeah i guess i mean i do mean faux edginess i don't think casting keeper sutherland and christian slater on your movie is actually an edgy choice <laughs> right right but yeah. uh yeah it's you're it's a lot of explosions but why this movie does it worse is that it worked in Robin Hood because they have a central like and also as part of this, the characters are always snipping at each other and stuff like that. You know, they have a little more of that 90s like we're friends, but we're dicks to each other all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's partially an output of buddy cop movies. It's partially yeah. an output of the Bart Simpsonification of, of youth culture. Right. Like this, this sort of taking the little snipes at each other. There's there's a few different sort of inputs that you can see pretty clearly here. Like this is this is a buddy cop movie. Uh, this is also a like 90s like, hey man, you, isn't Rochefort a type of stinky cheese? Like that, <laughs> or that yeah, <laughs> or a buddy bro um, like outlaw thing, a la Young Guns, right? Yeah, like that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why it fails, I think, and this may be really specific, but it's just that kind of like trying to adapt the same type of novel while missing why one novel or adaptation of a story was able to succeed where one wasn't is that Robin Hood works, I think, for a lot of that stuff because they have a base of operations. They have Sherwood Force. They're able to go to the action, make a base that has action scenes, and then go back together and unwind. Though in this, this movie, they do they do mention a, uh, a musketeer's headquarters, which <laughs> sounds like they were trying to, like, uh, hey, kids, uh, this Christmas, make sure you tell your parents to pick you up the Musketeers headquarters. Like. It bends. <laughs> we'll get to that. But I, I think that is a central problem in what they were trying to replicate because part of even a buddy cop movie, Peter, where do they they go? They do their crazy. They chase the, you know, the bad guy. They talk him off from committing suicide a la lethal weapon. And then they go back to unwind at their base to kind of talk about what happened at the police station. That is a central part of the type of dynamic they're trying to create here. The problem with the three Musketeers is that they probably should have had the Musketeer base because um, 
They're uh, just always on the run. They're, they're always running. on the run. And like the, the seconds they get at like the some bar or something like that, they're always separated because they're all trying to relax after having to fight together. It like it misses that part of like you need a place to unwind if you're gonna create this dynamic. The other thing it horribly miscalculates is it also tries to copy that idea of that Robin Hood has of like not not just can the Ro- Robin Hood isn't just the person who takes down King John and the sheriff. He inspires people. You know, by the end of Robin Hood, they have a whole village that is basically migrated to Sherwood Forest and is helping create bows and arrows and stuff like that. Like there is a there is a build in Robin Hood's stories especially in Prince of Thieves, where they start getting more and more people. He starts out as a lone outlaw, and then more and more people join. This movie tries that same moment at the end where there's an uprising by the people led by Robin Hood. But instead, because this whole movie takes place in what I assume is 48 hours, (laughs) at the beginning of the movie, they disband the three musketeers. for all all of the musketeers. All the musketeers, except for the three that just weren't there that day. They were on PTO. (laughs) And then, like... And then by the end of the movie, they're like, oh, fuck, what should we do? I don't know. I guess call back the three musketeers. Sure. Oh, great idea. There's hundreds of them. That will Uh, really help. And And also, they don't show up anonymously. They show up with their musketeer outfits that were burned in an earlier scene. (laughs) But but that's the thing. Like, the idea of, like, of Robin Hood (laughs) is that, like, you're supposed to feel inspired when you see that many people taking down the castle because there's been a a ramp to it there's been a build it's you know fuck that's the one thing rise of skywalker gets right is like when you see all the ships show up at the end it's the like, one scene in that movie where like i got like a, a little yeah know, a little a star ba- wars a ba- moment a baby yeah. shiver a little bit of like that 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 uh childlike feeling again <laughs> yeah this has no stakes in anyone being gone because they all i guess just quit and then two days later they're like you know what we should do call up all those guys call up our army why we should have done that and yeah. everyone's like, sure. And the army, there's no pushback. They're just all there to, they to have, have the happens, battle. They're tunics. It's like yeah. they didn't watch the first half of the movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, no, we weren't. We didn't quit. Like, you guys had the weekend shift, which is why you were on PTO the two days before. And now it's just Monday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these back. are the musketeer reserves, actually. Yeah. So I, that's a huge problem. Like, the big cathartic moment. It just feels like, okay, I guess there's more of them now. Uh, it, it, it feels completely unearned, which is a big part of, I think, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And then two other very specific things that this movie tries to copy, and then we'll move ahead with more of the movie, is, like, this feels almost plagiarizing. Is what if we get Brian Adams to write a hit number one love ballad for our movie, too? Because well, here's... Go ahead. <laughs> no, here's the thing about that. I, I actually think, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like that song almost came first. There was like, all right, is Brian Adams available? Then let's make a movie. Like that's <laughs> they, they worked backwards from the credit song is how it feels to me. But that's the other part where they really fuck up. Now, the song didn't fuck up. Song was a huge success. I mean, the song's nowhere near as good, even for like early 90s it's Brian so Adams ballads. Funky. It's so It's three dudes refusing to tell each other no. It's just like, yeah. yeah, hey, that line kind of, oh, no, it's great. It's a good, good Well, only Brian wrote. Adams wrote it. I th- oh, really? Like, yeah, Brian Adams and a mutt something, the guy that ended up marrying uh, Shania Twain and producing Lang. the album. Yeah. Yeah. Mutt, mutt Lang. Is mutt it Lang. weird that Brian Adams, between the Brian Adams and Ryan Adams fight, <laughs> Brian Adams won? 
It's Brian Adams won handily at that. <laughs> handily. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, God, um, sorry, go on. But even in that, like, so they did get a number one hit out of it. They tied it very directly to the movie. <laughs> like, very direct. Like, everything I do, I do it for you is just a love song they used in Robin Hood. Like, this is like, let's take the fucking slogan, the only thing people know for Three Musketeers, and write out a refrain around it. And then those dumb motherfuckers don't put it in the movie. They put it as the as people are leaving. Everything I do, I do it for you isn't fully in the movie till the end, but they keep working the song in and like the, the, yeah. music, the instrumentation in throughout. Well, the so, original title of that song, though, was Everything I Do, I Do For You... Because I'm Robin Hood. Robin Hood's theme. <laughs> Robin Hood's theme. Yeah, it's it's just insane how they bungled that part, too. So, like, I think that, that you could potentially have got up and left the movie theater and then heard that song on the radio and not know they're supposed to be related. Which is a terrible marketing gimmick if you're trying to have a hit song that helps market your movie. And the last thing I'll say, and I just think this is a microcosm of everything wrong with the two... And Rick, you're going to have to tell me if this was a thing for you. So any good movie that's supposed to appeal to kids is supposed to have fucking action figures and play sets, especially in the 90s. That is such a key part of it. You watch the movie, you beg your parents to spend six bucks on on Friar Tuck or whatever, who has a club. <laughs> um, and there's always the one action figure that's just like two barrels of wine or something like um, that they included instead of like a woman. Uh, from the movie, uh, like uh, like the two penguins you could get for Batman Returns, but you get you get playsets, you get castles, you get stuff like that. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves had fucking amazing Kenner action figures. They actually did uh, cloth tunics over all the people, so it wasn't just the normal plastic stuff. You had like the the kind of real feel of like the aesthetic that they were going for in that movie a huge sherwood forest like a weird battle tank that's not in the movie like all the normal stuff that you would see in my research for this because i'm like man i feel like i was obsessing over action figures when i was 10 years old i don't remember ever seeing three musketeers it seems easy right swords castles horses like yeah sell them you- separately you get get three sales out of four yeah. sales out of the deal sure yeah you how could you fuck this up and then I find out that they did, and only some only '90s kids, true '90s kids, will remember these. Uh, they did five action figures as bendums. If if you don't know what a bendum is, it's just a piece of rubber that looks like your favorite character's been in a terrible accident, and it has no like accessories. But you can't take off the sword; just connect it. Yeah, and you could theoretically bend them into different poses, except what happened is that you'd move the arm slightly and then it would, over a course of about five seconds, move back to the starting position. Yeah, I, I, I associate them almost entirely with wrestling. Yeah, and their default pose was if... Uh, they had got crushed by a grand piano while trying to make a snow angel. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think... I think that just shows how much mistakes they made in trying to copy Robin and Prince of Thieves. They even have a weird dark arts uh, prison dungeon that's a little bit too graphic for the audience. They're going oh my at. god! Right? That was the part when I said when when like because Robin Hood was Prince of Thieves. I feel like this got PG because of Disney 
that part where that guy gets crushed in the Iron Maiden is horrifying. Dude. Oh, that's that's uh, yeah. I feel like this was uh, at the era where um, if you were if you if the pitch that came with the the actual film um, came from Disney, you got a little bit extra leeway um, with with the MPAA. Like they they also like that this this also happened with like the Indiana Jones movies. Like they were pretty violent for you know what were kids movies. Yeah, but it was Spielberg, so it's like Spielberg. Whatever. Yeah, so they got. I, the, oh, they got fine. The you don't like. You don't. <laughs> you don't. Uh, you don't want the R rating. Well, I guess just invent a new rating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You're, you're gonna I mean, invent the new story is a little more complicated than than what I yeah what I said. But you, you, you get the <laughs> the drift. Is like, oh, this this actually pretty violent movie. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you intended it as a kids movie, so you know, carry on. So the last thing I really want to talk about, and I'm, I'm going to make this two minutes, and this is like. Only true 90s kids who also uh, had parents who were involved in uh, national Catholic boycotts would know about. (laughs) Um, Okay. So 1993, we've actually talked about this movie. It's very hard to find. I've never seen the movie. I really want to. Uh, A movie called Priest. Um, Have you ever heard of it, Rick? I have not. So it's directed by Antonio Bird. It's her first movie. Who did Ravenous. Ravenous, yeah. Yep. Um, and it was uh, it was a huge international like uh, festival hit that was bought by Miramax. It was about a priest struggling with homosexuality. Okay. Um, and it was in uh, – so Miramax bought it in 1993. The other thing that happened in 1993 is Disney bought Miramax. So there was a huge – so Disney actually – it's funny hearing the story now reading about it. Disney Michael Eisner tried to tell Miramax they weren't able to release it. They did a – Miramax had to keep cutting the movie, cutting the movie, cutting the movie. So what was released in America on barely any cinemas was like this, you know, butchered version of a of a movie that like Antonio Bird talks about. Like I actually talked to a lot of Catholic priests. It was like blessed by certain parishes. I would, like she was trying to make uh, a true story of faith in a, in a religion that like teaches something's a sin and stuff like that. But of course, that's, you know. Just whatever. It's it's. How dare you say gay priests are a thing? So th- it got butchered to death. It got barely released. It got one shitty DVD release. It's it's never been on streaming. It's never been on Blu-ray. Very hard to watch to this day. So that was what actually ended up happening, which fucking sucks. What the story that of course, uh, Catholic, uh, the National Catholic, like uh, Hugh, what's his name, Bill Donahue, and those people said was that it's Disney, which was an evil corporation who was uh, essentially trying to be as anti-Catholic as possible. And Priest was an example of that, that Disney had purposely tried to release Priest to show how much they were against Catholic, the Catholic faith. The other example in 1993 was the movie Three Musketeers, because uh, they believed that Tim Curry's character, uh, who is a Catholic uh, cardinal. Based on um, a real cardinal. Based on a real Cardinal. I mean, yeah. sorry, in name only, basically. I mean, in the 1600s France, I, I don't know how to tell this to everyone. Uh, a lot of Cardinals, Cardinals and Popes and everyone else were just some fucking evil bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were like the 1600s Donald Trumps. Um, but so you start doubting the fallibility of Popes in in that era. Um, yep. you you are uh, tiptoeing towards uh, doubting the fallibility of modern popes, right? Like I, I I noticed when I was in Catholic school that like most of the teachers were very uncomfortable with like uh, research projects that resolved that revolved <laughs> around like the 
a- absolute just like fucking hundreds of years long run where every pope was corrupt as possible. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> had had wives and consorts and started wars for money and like just like yeah. every all the worst stuff. Uh, yeah, so instead of, like, recognizing that this was, A, based on a historical person and, and just a, uh, uh, just based on, hit, like, this ha- this kind of shit happened in history all the time. Because uh, cardinals weren't just, like, holy bishops or whatever. Uh, extra holy bishops, super spicy. They were, uh, they were, like, power brokers. They were, like, you know, dukes and kings and that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm assuming it's in the novel, but it was, like... Again, there was always intent. So it was Disney purposefully um, making a movie with an evil cardinal who keeps referencing the faith as a way to show uh, to stick it to Catholics. And uh, this also was around the time that um, there was that belief that there was all those secret messages in Disney movies that were, again, designed instead of like a board animator. They were like an orchestrated plot, which led to um, a lot of Catholics led by Bill O'Donoghue, uh, protesting a movie that came out about a year and a half after all this, uh, saying that they weren't going to go see Pocahontas. And I knew people, My thankfully my parents were not, nowadays they would have been this crazy, but they were not at that time. <laughs> um, they've only gone down the slope, but we had a bunch of family friends who like weren't able to, like friends my age, that weren't able to see Pocahontas. Uh, it was talked about, I remember, in like homilies at church about that, you know, maybe we should think twice about supporting Disney, who's clearly been on a anti-Catholic tirade. And the two movies that really sparked that were uh, Three Musketeers and uh, Antonio Bird's uh, Priest. And that is incredible. Yeah. Uh, it just feels so, like, innocuous watching this, that the idea that, like, Disney to this day, there's still stuff that thinks that Pocahontas, which obviously um, it's not a good movie, and it also follows The Lion King, but they were on such an incredible track record that there's still a lot of people, and I don't know how much this is true, that think that Pocahontas box office and, like, kind of the end of that Disney thing was partially because of the anti-Disney sentiment because there was a belief that they were purposely trying to program people away from religion at the time. I just missed this entirely. That's, like, all new to me. The The fact that they zeroed in on this movie is is particularly hilarious. It's, like, one of those things where you – this the movie almost doesn't earn that scorn. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why, why are you guys obsessed with the Three Musketeers? It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, it was that idea. I don't. I don't think in a vacuum it would have happened. Now, not that there's any like it, right. It's the, people like the National Catholic League and Focus on the Family are always just looking for villains because that's actually where they you know get their support. Um, but I, it was after the priest thing, um, which again, what's so funny is that Disney was on their side, which sucks. But Disney <laughs> didn't want Miramax to release it, and you know. They were like, well, fuck you. We're going to release it. Like, we have a a level of independence. Um, And I think what we have learned is that everyone in that story is just a fucking piece of shit, except Antonio Bird and her wonderful film that I have yet to be able to see in its entirety. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it it is, we need to, you're right. We need to tap into what this era was really about. Because, like, Disney was caught in an awkward position where they were the family company, but also, like, they were trying to strive out and, and conquer more of the quadrants. Um, That's why so, they had, like, Touchstone and, re- like, yeah. all these different, like, imprints. And, yeah. And uh, and now... Caravan. And, 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 and it's something that we'll 
Um, we haven't talked about much this month, but it affects Disney to this day. Like Disney's live action efforts are largely either extensions of franchises, uh, not in not major motion pictures. So, you know, like a made for Disney Channel movies um, or um, them trying to kick off a new franchise. So like John Carter, right? Like that was them trying to yeah. kick off a new and create a new franchise at a time when like it seemed like. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot going on the, the the live action movie current, but like they don't make they don't make movies in the Rocketeer, Three Musketeers, Honey I Shrunk the Kids kind of molds. Um, they 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 just they just don't. They make all of their big sort of four quad four quadrant style family movies are um, <clears throat> are uh, Star Wars movies, Marvel movies, like extensions of existing franchises sure well we're gonna get even more into the attempt to rip off kevin reynolds robin Hood, prince of thieves are you guys ready to keep talking about charlie sheen's piety but still kind of wants to fuck if he gets a chance in 1993's the three musketeers yeah yeah saddle up saddle up alternate taglines or something three musketeers please don't count the people on the poster because <laughs> <laughs> guys did you know there's four yeah. whoa um yeah no there's three musketeers and one musketeer at uh in training right what do you call like a trainee musketeer uh a not musketeer if if you had asked me before rewatching this movie, what's a musketeer? And said, otherwise I'm gonna burn down your house. I would be recording from a pile of cinders. <laughs> because I still, I still don't know. Okay, they so protect. Just, I, they're like the king's guard. They're I the think king's guard, the but they're like also like a, a fraternal order. Like, are they are they like Freemasons? Are they Templars? Look, here's what I know. They both quit very easily with almost no fight, even though there's way more of them than anyone else. And and two, when asked to rejoin, they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, I kept my tunic. Um, <laughs> also, you, you know what they don't have? Muskets. They have minimal muskets. They're, they they seem to be more in, in, in the, 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 the sort of uh, uh, sword, the three swordsmen. What they should be. I yeah. hope we get into this is kind of another like attempt to do Robin Hood Prince of Thieves where like they come up with weird gadgets in this Robin Hood. It's like why does Oliver Platt like they like dipped they dipped their toe into like maybe he's got a couple cool cool things. I don't know. Maybe uh maybe a sigh. Uh a spring loaded sigh that turns in it's like a dagger, but then two little daggers come out the side. Yeah, oh yeah, I did, I literally didn't know what you were talking about. Now I remember. Yeah, he does have he, a thing. He has a thing like a like a Voldo from Soul Calibur. Like they're like switchblades all on the end of one blade. It's very it's it's very confusing. They do it a couple times because he's like, oh, this is a cool gadget. Like I guess he's sort of like uh, the gadget 
from Chippendale's Rescue Rangers in this. Huh. Sure. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to keep the references in line with when the movie came out. Yeah. Smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart. Um, yeah, so... This, this is... podcast is primarily for people that just woke out of a coma <laughs> <from> 1993. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna be we we're gonna be reviewing all the movies that are at Blockbuster today. Um, so uh, we're, we're, what is we're still about? awaiting Nirvana's second album. Oh yeah, third album. Sorry. So we're gonna. You guys want me to talk about uh, the three musket guys? Yeah, try to explain the so like, <laughs> the forty forty eight hours right? of the, <laughs> this. The alternate title could be, or uh, the alternate title for this movie could be the forty eight hours when there wasn't a musketeer. <laughs> <laughs> the day the musketeering stopped. The the weekend the musketeers took a break. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the the weekend of the a weekend on horseback. But like. The, 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 it'd be like if somebody was like Secret Service, you're all fired and then they all went home and then someone was like, don't you want to protect the president? And you're like, well, we oh were, yeah! They laid off our entire department and they sent us home. Like, I don't know what you want. Like, we got furloughed. I don't know what you want me to do. It must, yeah, like, I'll tell you this, like, furloughing, laying off, it's all pretty bad. Firing. I am glad that, like, when companies did that in COVID times, they didn't gather everyone to a courtyard and tell them all at once. Like, yeah. I, I don't think that's HR approved. <laughs> I do think that when they rehire everyone, they should do it via cryptic message attached, uh, nailed into a tree. <laughs> that should be the way you get rehired. I love, it's, I love how he sends out the, those pieces of paper get sent out and they literally look like they were written on like printer paper that somebody like <laughs> frayed the edges with a lighter like it was like a book report on like on like Native Americans or something. It's like, yeah. like I'm going to make old timey printer paper. Like it's written. It's not written by hand. It's it was like, it was like Porthos was like, man, we got to use this la- my, my dot laser printer for this one. We're going it's to the dot. But it's also it's just their it's just their slogan. And they're like. Like, we know what this fucking means because like it just says like all for one foot for all it's like if you were a marine that was done with your tour of duty and you came back and someone had written in calligraphy on a fucking post-it note semper fi and you're like i guess i'm going back to iraq <laughs> there was there was no other instructions on the piece of paper so, like, no that's, that's the thing the movie is it will get to you're like wear a disguise missing. oh i get what this means Wear my cool tunic, my blue tunic that doesn't look stupid. Does not look stupid. Pull, and then, pull that from uh, the flames. Pull and then the put embers. other things over it and just gather like you're there to watch. I get it. It's all it's all subtext. And and it like we'll we'll, we'll get to it, but like yeah, this movie does feel like there is the most fun part of these movies missing from the third act, which is um uh, our group of bumbling, you know, buddies uh, give a rousing speech and, you know, tell everyone what it means to be a real musketeer. <laughs> like, the movie's missing yeah. the, like, D'Artagnan stepping up and giving a speech about what his, this newfound brotherhood means to everyone. I don't, um, you really want to hear Chris O'Donnell give that speech. <laughs> oh, yes, but... The thing is, we live in a reality where the movie is, 140, or is an hour and 45 minutes... And it gets to be over at an hour and 45 minutes. So, like, I wouldn't necessarily add 10 minutes to the movie to have Chris O'Donnell botch that moment. I'm just saying I'm surprised that the movie didn't make that moment happen. Yeah, they didn't even try. So, anyways, what is this movie? So, D'Artagnan, 
Young, uh, young son of an old musketeer that died by the hand of Rochefort. <laughs> um, Likes to th- fuck this guy's sister, I guess. <laughs> Big yeah. part of this movie. Anyways, D'Artagnan, uh, a young, arrogant, sort of cocky, cocksure, uh, you know, archetype. Um, he idolizes the musketeers. Uh, the you know, he reminds guards. me of as a character. What? Uh, Robin from Batman Forever. <laughs> so like the 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 wormy smug little fuck that just like, yeah. gets in the way of everybody. Yeah, and like clearly he's not ready, but you know he's gone through some shit. Like his family died, and he is he's ready to to join the superheroes. And people are like, "You're just not ready, dude." But he doesn't care. He's gonna go. I don't know. Be a musketeer slash steal the Batmobile if he feels like he's ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in his heart. In his heart, yeah. So he he is uh, essentially, I don't know, he's come of age or whatever. He's decided that it's finally time to go join the Musket Boys. And uh, he uh, it, we're introduced to him being a smug little fuck. Uh, it, it, he kissed a girl and his the girl's sister, the, sorry, the girl's brothers are, you know, trying to uh, avenge her honor. And uh, they're going to be chasing him throughout the movie. It's really not important. I don't know why I mentioned it. Um, it it does it is the final moment though like the yeah we're finally gonna beat up that guy's <laughs> literally hundreds of people are gonna fuck up this guy <laughs> who kissed whose sister kissed Chris O'Donnell like it's the final uh, yeah. I don't know like chord that the movie strikes yeah, yeah. that's the triumph <laughs> yeah because uh, the movie rests its laurels on uh, bad jokes so. Um, the movie needs to end on one of those bad jokes, uh, to be consistent. So anyways, uh, <clears throat> D'Artagnan goes off, uh, at the same time, uh, seemingly that day, uh, Rochefort and, uh, Cardinal Richelieu, who are vying for, uh, the crown, uh, of France, um, the France crown. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they As are- seen in the television show The Crown, possibly? I've never seen it. <laughs> Uh, possibly, possibly. I mean, I think it's about that one's about the English crown, so this would mm. this would be France crown. They're they're uh, in this whole milieu. They're in it too. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so, anyways, uh, they uh, Rochefort and uh, Cardinal Richelieu are uh, doing villainous shit, and they know that the musketeers stand in the way of them um, taking over the crown. They have the muscle, but they they need to uh, uh, disband the three musketeers so they have easier access to the crown and they can, you know, quote unquote, protect the king themselves. Um, really, they're planning a coup. Uh, the musketeers uh, immediately give in uh, in an almost Game of Thrones like moment where you're like, oh, the, the hyper honorable g- group of uh, group of soldiers uh, immediately acquiesce to the demands of a tyrant. That's uh, all right. Um, well, it actually, the, the one thing that I think is interesting that hopefully the book pays off in some way or is part of the book is that, like, if one of you stands against me, I'm going to hurt all of you. So it's that that seems like it probably should have had some sort of factor later on when three musketeers stand against him. But to be clear, it does not. <laughs> uh, the movie is now well constructed. Um, but anyways, they all give up immediately like a bunch of wusses. They burn their tunics. They throw in their swords. Uh, that fact is irrelevant. Uh, and then uh, D'Artagnan arrives and he meets these uh, sad three um, remaining musketeers uh, who are, you know, sort of in hiding, um, who are sort of lamenting the loss of their their brotherhood. He challenges them all to a fight, uh, sort of uh, the movie establishing his arrogance and his, his uh, you know, uh, rashness. 
and uh, he essentially uh, gets roped in with a, a fight. The the actual battle lines get drawn. He gets roped in with a fight uh, with these three musketeers once he realizes who they are against uh, against the cardinal. Uh, they go on the run uh, to try and uh, reveal the plans of the cardinal to the king. <clears throat> well, Chris O'Donnell gets captured and overhears the plans. Yes, yes. Um, ultimately, his capture isn't super important other than it brings in the Rebecca de Mornay character, um, who is... Uh, uh, I'm just going to use the actor's names. It's Kiefer Sutherland's uh, ex, ex-wife, ex-lover... Um, and she has a bit of the, the she has the, uh, the plans, she has the, the, um, sort of the, the confession almost from Cardinal Richelieu that he's a traitor. Um, they decide, okay, now, now that we've intercepted these, these plans that were supposed to go to the, the King of England. The treaty with England. That would yeah. Essentially, essentially it was, it was, it was all part of Cardinal's plan to overthrow the, the throne. And then establish this treaty with England so that the cardinal could kind of shore up his strength um, and end this war. And uh, so uh, the musketeers say, fuck that. Um, they get this treat. They intercept the treaty. They use the they have their evidence. And it's uh, <laughs> then they immediately go and gather up all the musketeers uh, and launch a full out assault on the castle on the day of the king's birthday. Um, Can we just pause there for a second? There having the treaty bears no impact whatsoever in the plan. Like they could have just gathered the army and do the thing because they no one stands down because of the treaty. They never used yeah. the treaty. It, well, what does happen is that apparently the war continues. So it's really the story about how the three musketeers make sure that there there is no peace with England, right? <laughs> the the 30 years war will continue to its full 30 years. Um our heroes. Our heroes. <laughs> so, uh yeah, the the three musketeers, they uh they they launch a full on assault with their fellow uh you know, the musketeers minus the three. Um and uh they uh intercept a plan to assassinate the king and they uh beat Cardinal Richelieu after a extended battle. They defeat Rochefort the villain and uh they I believe they present Oh, the Chris plans. O'Donnell finds out that Rochefort killed his yeah. His, yeah, his dad, which is, you know, what he was already motivated to be a musketeer at that point. He didn't need, it's, it's like, yeah, it's a hat on a hat or whatever you want to say. Um, <laughs> it was uh, like his, re- he was already trying to kill Rochefort, but now he really wanted to kill him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I usually like, it's like you're about to eat a sandwich and the sandwich looks good. And then someone's like, that sandwich killed your dad. And I'm like, well, I'm definitely eating it You now. realize, ba- yeah, based on this interpretation, the plot of this movie could have been they meet Chris O'Donnell. They go tell the musketeers when they come back on vacation, like, hey, what if instead of disbanding, we go fuck all of them up? And they go, yeah. And then they do that. Because yeah. that's like, they don't need any of the other stuff because the same the same thing would have happened. The king, though, I mean, he, he, he is, they are able to use that treaty to sort of prove the cardinal's... Um, mischievousness but though kind of, but he admits to it right the, he's the like doing assass- his whole plan the failed assassination attempt leads to the cardinal just kicking in his coup yeah um so like and the king immediately knows what's going on also the king should have been a little bit fucking suspicious that the cardinal was like you don't hey you know your personal bodyguards that are only there to defend you uh Incredibly what if we fired all, all of them yeah and used my him army home. I sent him home. they were not chill they did. They couldn't hang. They they were saying actually, bro. Like I, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but they were saying actually that like you're not like a good king. Like so, I 
I, I hate to be the I hate to be the bearer of bad news, bro. But like, you know, for real, it's fine. We're gonna get you out tonight. We're gonna get you new bodyguards. Sorry, I have bodyguards for you. They all serve me though, so they're gonna be your bodyguards now. Is that cool? And the king was like, dope. There's also there's also a scene where, where he's like he's like oh yeah oh you heard all those things we're trying to fuck the queen and uh, and I I'm trying to make I'm gonna kill you and make the make the <laughs> make a treaty with England ah absurd ah, people heard a lot of crazy anything. things about me this is like the conversation when he questions him for disbanding his bodyguards without talking to him first and he's like oh you're right this does sound pretty silly all these random things that I've never mentioned you're bringing up. <laughs> god um yeah so uh yeah they win um oh and then also uh i I, you know sometimes i forget things in the recap and it's actually uh somewhat indicative of the movie chris o'donnell is in love with the queen's sister and i guess they're in love now i mean i think they have a flirtatious but there's no like again the ending cap isn't him kissing julie depley it's him getting once again accosted by this (laughs) lady's brother who wants to beat him up but now he's got the entire contingent of musketeers to to help him yeah that's the guy's been following he's been following him the whole movie it's so ridiculous which is crazy because they don't move that's again my criticism they just stay in the surrounding area for the whole fucking movie He's just, yeah. like, separated from him by, like, a bunch of vendors selling chickens at, like, all times. No matter when, <laughs> where they go, there's always a guy selling a chicken in between them. This he movie is actually him. just a secret chase movie where he's the protagonist trying to kill the get the villain, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, this movie's silly. Um, can we – do you know – so Charlie Sheen, we didn't mention much in either our previous discussion or the recap. He is not in this movie that much. And he's definitely like he has one little Charlie Sheen moment at the beginning when they're doing the introduction of all of them where he's like because he's the faithful one who doesn't like death and prays for people. And that's like his character thing. My guess is it was a bigger thing in the novel. Um, <laughs> and uh, so but he's barely in any of the fights like the fights are almost all Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt and Keith Sutherland. Do you guys know why Charlie Sheen is barely in this movie, even though he's first built uh, cocaine problem? Uh, great guess, but wrong in this particular case. Uh, sex worker problem? Great guess, but wrong in this particular case. Uh, uh alcohol he- plus sex worker problem? Great guess, but wrong in this particular case. He couldn't or wouldn't do the stunts? Uh, great guess and pretty close, actually. Um, so, oh, they made all of a half man in the woods? <laughs> they made they made all of our four musketeer leads go through eight weeks of basic like of sword training, and Charlie Sheen couldn't attend because he was shooting uh, Hot Shots Part Two. Um, Honestly, during the better time use that, of his time. That's a funny movie. That's a great movie. Yeah, um, even good, better good than the Charlie first one. Sheen. You made one good career good choice. It's funny that their reaction to that was, oh, I guess. You won't be in the movie, really, then. <laughs> well, I mean, he, why he doesn't need to be in that many scenes when he has the line, a man of God or a man of gold. <laughs> my, my favorite line in the movie. His delivery I, is fantastic. I, so okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a hot take um, in this movie. Uh, I think Chris, I think we could all agree on the basis of the hot take, which is that Chris O'Donnell is this just fucking anchor dragging the whole movie down this dead weight 
Um, yeah, normally an anchor is a positive thing. Yeah, yeah it's an anchor. <laughs> in this on, case. <laughs> it's an anchor that weighs more than the ship, so it's just dragging it into the water. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, a just a dead weight, right? Like, can we all agree that it's it's yeah just, yeah okay? So he is he is aggressively bad in this movie. He has a sort of he just shouldn't be in a period piece. He probably shouldn't be in movies, so, but he definitely shouldn't be in a period. I was piece. reading in the Times someone making fun of him for not even attempting a British accent, and I was like, do you know how much worse that would be? Like, I, we adore Keanu, but like, he is horrifically bad in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and he's trying a British accent really, really hard. Um, that movie is amazing still, don't worry. I actually watched that right after I watched this movie. It's really strange that you say oh, that. Weird. Maybe, oh, maybe subconsciously I was like, hmm. Uh, Rick, weigh in on Winona's that. accent and Keanu's accent in that movie. Go. Uh, Winona Ryder was supposed to be in this movie, too. She actually was cast and then dropped up. Well, that's funny. Was she really? Good she for her. As, the, as Julie Del... Oh, the queen. Mm. Good for her. Waste of her time. Um, Rick, what's your what's your take on the accents in that movie? Because it'll help me get where I'm going. Oh, I mean, extraordinarily poor, but it doesn't really... It doesn't sink the movie in any way to me. I yeah. can look right past it. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I totally agree there. But, okay, so the point I'm making is that um, Chris O'Donnell, uh, I think, wisely makes the choice to just use his normal accent. But his normal accent and face are smug and bad. And um, I feel bad saying that, but, like, <clears throat> he does have, like, because he's a very handsome guy, but he is, like, this sort of personality where it's, like, you probably should have just been, like, an underwear model. Like, you're... Like, yeah. really nice to look at, but you have this, like, on-screen persona where, like, I just want to jack you in the face. And, like, mm-hmm. he's, like, he's, like, the neighbor character on The King of Queens who, like, shows up every episode on, like, a date with someone. And Kevin James is, like, oh, if I wasn't dated to this Scientologist, I'd be <laughs> out there with Chris O'Donnell. Like, that's, that's, like, that's where Chris O'Donnell should have yeah. found a role as an acting. Yeah. Doesn't he also seem, like, uh, too young for the part, or is it just me? Like, the scene where he's, like, half-naked with Rebecca de Mornay feels, like, a little scandalous. Like, he's too he's too young. He is but he's I, very baby-faced, and, and it's, um, it, 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 but maybe it's appropriate to the novel. Like, I imagine, right. I imagine he, him, maybe he's age-appropriate to the novel, but the rest of the, the, uh, the actors at this time, like, these sort of approaching 30 guys are probably way too, way too But old. I actually think Chris O'Donnell is, like, late 20s or, you know, mid to late 20s in this movie. Which oh, really? No, no, and no. I, it's I like, buy that. he... He was 30 <laughs> in Batman Forever, and we thought that was hilarious when we were recording oh, the yeah. episode. And, but I think, I think the reason that he, he, does, he does feel really young. I mean, it is, it's still funny now that basically like he's like, you're adopting me? We're basically <laughs> I'm going to take this 30-year-old on my wing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look, if you if you need a dad, if you, hold on, if you need a father figure, definitely put together 1996 Val Kilmer is the, the the person who basically kept trying to quit a movie he was shooting. I definitely think that's the kind of father figure you want in 1996. Um, it's still funny. Yeah, I know. But it, so he, I mean, so he's probably 28 in this movie. I actually think I agree with you, Rick. And I'm going to throw out something that again sounds mean, but I think is why he feels so young compared to everyone else is because he, the fact that he's a bad actor and all of his lines lack conviction. Um, in the same way that like, um, 
you know, Simpsons capture so perfectly in like the, you know, the, the nerdy teenager or whatever, where everything is kind of like, you can't come in here. <laughs> and it's like, you recognize that voice as one of immaturity. He doesn't have the confidence to like stand up to a customer or do something else. And I think that's why Chris O'Donnell exudes that level of immaturity, even though he is probably five years different than Rebecca DeMornay. <laughs> okay I'll, I'll buy it it's still bizarre it seems like there's at least a 30 year age gap between him and oliver platt maybe 40 i mean i think so here's what is crazy to me oliver platt so in the next movie we're gonna cover which is next week he plays paul bunyan he looks like oliver platt he i don't know i suppose it's the eight weeks of sword training but like this is the sexiest oliver platt's ever gonna get <laughs> yeah you're right it's true yeah, and it's it, and uh, so okay. So hold Chris on, O'Donnell, you know how old, so you, hold on, you know how old Chris O'Donnell is right now? Uh oh, God, fifty-two. He is fifty. Oh God. Let's see how old Rebecca DeMornay is right now. Sixty. Okay, that's fine. So okay. ten years. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so yeah, let's go back to my point. <clears throat> I think he's. I think he's. We can all agree that he is the 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 rotting core of this movie. This is like. I think the key problem uh, of of why this movie doesn't work, and it all kind of springs I mean, off of him. There's a lot because, of anchors because I think your... that I think the I think the problem is that all the actors were misdirected. Um, more so than I, I like. I think the production in the movie is kind of handsome. Like, I think it's like kind of like a nice looking movie. I think the action scenes are pretty decent. Like, I think I, the costumes are bad. That's my. I think hmm. they're really bad. I mean, they're but anyways. Go ahead. I, yeah, I mean. Whatever. I think the the sets are amazing looking though. Um, like, well, they they shot it on location in Austria. So yeah, the sets it's an the actual sets are great, but I I so do cool. think that when when they like the the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves when he puts on his Robin Hood outfit, it's like okay. At the end, it looks kind of fucking cool. They're they're musketeers outfits because of their like large robish tunics look really like they look better when they're not in them and i don't think that's a good design I, for your hero costume i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say it right just now say- i didn't notice because i have been around enough like ren fair people that like i know enough rennies that i i know but do you just, think like, it looks the, cool that, I, <laughs> I guess that's my it point cool. right it all just looks like people <laughs> doing ren fair stuff which is like if you do that that's amazing which is not good cool. for you but like that's not that's not i'm not gonna be like oh but their vests and shit when they're like all dressed like pirates look fine. But then they put on these giant like uh, papal outfits um, that just it's all of a sudden they're they're like these cloth blobs <laughs> fighting all over the place. <laughs> Not a great hero moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and like there's a whole debate here about like, you know, what ma- what uh, constituted masculine fashion in the 16 and 1700s and yada yada. I mean, yada, if Superman like, like when he finally got a suit on was like a, it was a snuggie, you wouldn't be like, "Oh my god." <laughs> What a hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I and I also I get that like, you know, you have to cut the difference between the time period. Like in Mad Men they're wearing like which is supposed to take place sixty years ago. They're they have like nice fitted suits, but at the time everyone looked like fucking David Byrne. Um <laughs> so my point here is that Chris O'Donnell is the the, the the production's fine, the pacing is actually kind of limber, like it's actually very well shot. It's shot by Dean Semler. Um, did you see some of the movies that Dean Semler shot? Young Guns is one of them. 
But he shot uh, Dances with Wolves, Apocalypto, so two beautiful period pieces, like, gorgeous to look at. I don't love Dances with Wolves as a movie, but you can't deny it's beautiful. Mad Max 2, which is a gorgeous movie. Um, and uh, he also shot uh, another, just, I think, cinema, cinema, uh, cinematographer, yeah, another uh, cinema, uh, you know, wonder, uh, Super Mario Brothers, uh, as well as Razorback. So... Dean Semler knew how to shoot a movie, is my point. My guess is he's from Australia. He is an Australian DP. There's, there's Mad Max 2 was his first huge, huge thing. Yeah, that and Razorback were my first two clues. Yeah, Razorback rules also, and that's a gorgeous movie. But anyways, I, I'm saying the movie is actually, like I think, I think somewhat well-produced. I think the, prob- the problem resides in entirely with the script and how the actors were, were directed. Because yeah, I nobody, think the direction's shitty. Nobody ever... Nobody ever zeroed in any of the characters on what they actually were. So every character is flailing about in the scene between this sort of awkward faux hip modernity and awkward like uh, community theater Shakespeare production. And <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the way the dialogue just veers wildly between like, you know, snappy modernized dialogue. I'm putting that in, in air quotes um, is and actual like. Like fancy boy flourishes, like the the, the like there's it's sort of fancified, like the, it it just completely emotionally ungrounds you with anything you're doing, and like the only time that like I felt emotionally connected is when like Kiefer Sutherland was yelling like protect the king, like because that is a line reading that like he can nail. They couldn't fuck it up in the script, and I felt something. I felt I felt excited, but like so much of the line readings is like Oliver Platt saying like God, I love my work. You're like. Oh, I'm a pirate. What movie, what movie am I fucking watching here? Right, it's supposed right. to be like a hip '90s like re- retcon of, uh, of yeah. this material, or is this <laughs> supposed is. to be like a serious, like you know, uh, a, a, a dramatic uh, iteration of this? Yeah. Also, Tim Curry's like chewing the scenery and doing his Tim Curry stuff. This should be like exactly what he's there for, right? Like his cardinal should be just like devouring everything in sight and they just leave him so stranded you're like come on yeah he he says all for one all for one and more for me like that sucks i wrote that that? down i wrote that down and i also wrote tim curry is the only person on earth who can make that line even slightly palpable (laughs) yeah the the best tim curry moment is not even that good of a line it's (laughs) such a fucking good delivery though I forget who says it to him. It's near the end where he's confessed to what he's going to do. And um, he says, you know, I think the king says over my dead body. And he like does that great Tim Curry, like malevolent scream almost. And is like, you know, that can be arranged, which is yeah, a yeah. cliche of a line. But whole like he gets every bit of that. Like there's there's only bone left on that line. And it's it's great. But you want more of those moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird, too, that, like, canonically his character doesn't die and becomes a diamond smuggler in Zaire right after this. Um, <laughs> it's canon. Yeah. It's canon, and he does. I'm he surprised does. that, uh, what's the what's the chimp's name? Why doesn't she show up? Co- uh, it's not Coco. I think that's the no. real chimp. Oh, no. Um, Amy. 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 Amy would have helped this movie out a lot. Actually. Amy. Martini. <laughs> Amy. Amy. Amy, bad ape, bad ape. Amy, Amy. The diamond mines of Zaire. 
<laughs> it sounded like your Herzog. Actually, it's all coming coming I together. Mean, that, I mean, that is like, I don't know when the last time you've seen Congo is. but Last year. Tim, I watch it almost every year. Great. Tim oh. Curry. You know then Tim Curry's like, what if I deliver every line like I'm trying to yell over an entire plate of spaghetti that I've just jumped in my mouth? <laughs> I, I just don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie where I'm like, Tim Curry should have been smaller. Like, he every time that he's in a movie, good, bad, whatever, I'm like, thank you, Tim Curry, for being uh, just as dialed up as I want. Because it wakes me up. Like, because I think this is a movie that actually, uh, it's pretty easy. You guys probably disagree. But, like, <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to actually get, like, racked into the pacing. Because it's pretty. It's a pretty fast-paced movie. It's got, like, some big action sequences. It's only an hour and 45 minutes, which for the amount of, like, uh, you know, incident <clears throat> is yeah. present is, like, a lot. Yeah. Um, th- there's just a lot of incident in the movie for an hour and 45 minutes. Um, yeah, it basically takes place in real time, I think. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think it does. It's, it's paced really quickly. It doesn't let you dwell on any moments too long. Um, and what I, and, 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 but every time the movie stops, you like it, your brain clicks into place, and you're like, "Oh yeah, Chris O'Donnell is not a talented actor." Or like, "Oh yeah, they well, didn't but take I, any I think... time to set up this moment." And like, the, yeah. they, the, whenever they slow down, whenever they stop, you, you you have a moment to like actually recognize. Like, I don't know how we got here. Or, I know how we got here, and man, that was a fucking contrived way to get here. And so, like, whenever Tim Curry, the movie slows down for Tim Curry to just throw fucking, like, camp bombs at people, I'm like, thank you so much. Like, this is, this is, this is how I want my movie to be paced. Like, a bunch of escape sequences and then stop everything for Tim Curry to be evil. Like, (laughs) yeah, but I, I do, I do think, and this refers back to an earlier point and kind of, I said that, you know, one of the problems compared to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is not having like a base of operations. But I I think just uh, not even needing to compare it to that movie. This is like one long chase sequence. The movie even comments on it like they try to arrest them. They defeat them. And then they see them again. They're like, they're not going to try to do this again twice in one day. And that's when they have the sword fight where Chris O'Donnell knocks the guy off the the. Uh, the wall i guess the the stone wall and then after they're done with that they get chased again like this movie has for for a movie where they're splitting up and chris o'donnell if you remember gets captured for part of it and people are just running around and they're having stuff in bars and like i never know where anyone is supposed to be in relation to the king and tim curry at any right. given point and like are they are they in the village are they a few towns down are they hiding somewhere else and i think that does pose a huge problem for just a sense of you're right like the individual ac- action sequences like the big explosion carriage like scene is fun in a, a vacuum right but but piecing it all together in my head, it's like, what the f- like? But that's also, why I think Aaron, we jo- go ahead. Yeah, we, wh- it's like, why what the fuck happened in this movie? Yeah, what the fuck happened though? The village all like kind of uh, helps them out, right? They like run interference, kind of. To, but I, kind of, I think they're supposed to be in a different village at some point because they. There's that point where it seems like they're just in the same location, and they and again in the fourth chase in twenty minutes, um, yeah. they get those arrows from the castle tower, or just maybe a, just a tower getting shot at them, 
and they say that cardinals uh the cardinals reach must stretch pretty far which seems to indicate they're far away from where they just were but like it's just one big chase and then the other two are in a forest somewhere hiding and then they split like it is just a mess of trying to figure out where everyone is supposed to be sure and if you're trying to do like one of the critical parts, I think, like, that movie's okay. If you want to do a movie that's basically a feature-length chase and action sequences, like, those movies have been done. They've been very successful. We just mentioned uh, a, a franchise in Mad Max that did one, for example. I know that's, a you know, kind of the apex of it, but there's a lot of good examples of a movie-length chase. But, but you know, as we talked about so well in Mad, the, what Mad Max Free Road does so well – is like you always know where everyone's at, where everyone. It's needs crucial. To be. Yeah, it's so crucial to that pace. And this movie, you never know where the fuck anyone is, or where they're supposed to be, or where they are in relation to anyone else. So it's impossible to enjoy it. I think even in that, um, that level, because your brain just starts going. I don't know whether I want him to go that way. I don't know whether I want him to escape. I don't understand the level of danger they're in. I'm not yeah, even who, sure where they're supposed to be going because they're sort of <laughs> meandering around until Chris O'Donnell comes back and is like, hey, I heard about what's happening. They're essentially just meandering around. They don't have a plan. They're just trying to escape the bishop's guards. And then when Chris O'Donnell's like, hey, I know what the fuck's going on, then they start having a mission. That's an hour into the movie. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that village carriage scene, though, I, I really didn't know, like, what the allegiances were. I thought they yeah. were helping them, and then they, they blow up the village. So I was like, oh, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know about this. I feel, like that's my, I feel like that's my reaction to most scenes in the movie. I was like, huh, yeah, I'm not really sure what's going on. Yeah, I guess there's just going to be more movie now. All right. Yeah. Am okay. I happy that guy died? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> okay. Can I can I park off literally fifteen seconds to talk about how much I love Michael Wincott? Um, oh he's, yeah, he's so bad. Oh, he's I feel like yeah. he's a he's a character actor that doesn't get uh, a lot of notice, but he has uh, the best voice. Like yeah. he his voice sounds like everything was filtered through a gravel pit. Like he sounds like he wakes up every morning. He's like. <sighs> gotta gotta keep my gotta keep my my actor voice uh in check and then he just like eats cups full of sand like, <laughs> like he he has like uh actor induced pica or something uh i i i just i i i love him he's uh sometimes he's the best part of not great movies like i don't really love the crow um i love alien resurrection but he's like super fu- he's like you know uh, one of the few parts of the movie I think no one would argue is, uh, you know, fantastic, uh, isn't fantastic. Um, and, and, and like, he, he's just, he just pops up in these sort of little genre touch points. He's usually, uh, pretty much unscathed though, by, uh, the, the incompetence of these movies though. And he's five years younger than Chris O'Donnell. That's yes. Incredible. That's, that's not true. Sorry. Oh. Oh. Wow. Well, I guess it's, it's literally, it's literally <laughs> incredible. <laughs> it's incredible uh, exactly how you meant it. Yes. Yeah, not, it's not credible. Uh, you know what else, though? He's in another movie that we've been talking about. I don't, I don't believe you. I, I've been he's in Robin many Hood, times. He's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He plays Guy of Gisborne. Oh, yeah. He's great in that. Yeah. He's, he's a perfect. Like they, he's also in The Count of Monte Cristo. 
He's, he's, he's made uh, for these roles. He, yeah. He must get these scripts and he's like, I love He must get these. <laughs> he must get. He must get these. You guys scripts. like that? He, he must good. get these scripts. Let's keep saying like, it. It's, it's funnier looks, if we keep saying it. <laughs> but I, I just. must get earmarked for <laughs> the roles. <laughs> do, um, so do, have we talked about how Oliver Platt is like uh, portrayed as uh, a sort of like uh, a heartthrob and a, uh, you know, a lady killer in this <laughs> yeah, movie? And a little bit like that. I mentioned that he's he's unreasonably sexy for an Oliver Platt type i guess like i uh yeah take a little trip to lake placid uh, just a just a few years later or or as paul bunyan two years from now which we'll be talking about next week um i don't i and here's the thing i so i went and looked at his uh imdb because i'm like did did his character arc change and he doesn't he hasn't done that much stuff before this so hmm. he can't go ahead no no please I was just going to say, so it feels like, I don't know, like, was he kind of, like, goofy sexy and then kind of changed his vibe a little bit to more straight comedy stuff? And, like, I don't know, like, it, it, it's, well, I, three, I don't, three there's not that much. Before, three years before this movie, he was in Flatliners with Kiefer Sutherland, mm-hmm. and he was not sexy at all. Oh, I guess I, I, I did see Flatliners uh, many, many years ago, and I... Don't remember it except thinking that I was going to like it and didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw it in theaters and I remember liking it, but I haven't seen it since then. And it I actually like, yeah, two thousand for me. Right, right. I actually was like eleven when that for that one. <laughs> I think I, I just think he I, I, he's uh he's sort of a a, a perma schlub and that's respectable. Um, yeah, I, I think that when he shows up in a movie, you're like. Uh, he's he's gonna he's gonna give it his all. He's that kind of character actor. He's kind of like one of one of our last remaining like the that guys. Um, but he's also like he has he has actual acting chops. It's just yeah, like, I, I I love Oliver Platt. Like, yeah, I, I don't I don't think you'd meet. I don't know that many people that dislike Oliver Platt. Like he's so good in. Um, uh, have you guys seen the Ice Harvest? I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, a hitman movie, right? Yeah, uh, the Harold Ramis directed one with John Cusack. He's he's great in that movie. Uh, he's also great on uh, Fargo, the first season. Yeah, West. He's also in West Wing and like uh, uh, Bored to Death and like he. Oh, uh, yeah. He's he's kind of um he he he's he's kind of one of those guys that, like when he shows up, I, I'm like oh the, you know at least seeing season it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um but uh it, it's kind of uh, it's just kind of strange to see like schlubby oliver platt who i love is like the sort of schlub who comes in and is either like you know he's got a scheme in his uh scheme up his sleeve um or he's um yeah my wife left me okay like he's, he's either he's one of those two guys right <laughs> yeah Maybe a combo i think i'm bored to death he's both of those um <laughs> Um, oh, and on Fargo, he's as an impending wife about to leave him. Yeah, yeah. To Glenn just, Howerton, I believe. Yes. Um, and, and and it's just it's it's just very strange to see him in this movie. There is one moment that he comes. There's two moments he comes off as very ugly. One, uh, there's this whole uh, wenching scene that we got to talk about like right now. 
Um, and he do, does this little oh, yeah. dance, and I actually had to turn away from the screen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I averted my eyes. Like, I, I have... I, I watch a lot of horror movies and I've recently watched like, I don't know, like a chainsaw going through someone's head. And I was like, hell yeah. But like Oliver Platt uh, doing sort of like Ren Faire dancing. I was like, oh, please. No. <laughs> um, and then later in the movie, there's a uh, a martial artist doing yeah. movie kung fu. Oh, yeah. Him. I forgot. I forgot about that guy. And then he does a... Um, uh, uh, racist uh, <laughs> uh, impression of the martial artist and then, uh, uh, you know, kills him sort of Indiana Jones style. Yeah, it definitely is supposed to be an Indiana Jones moment, but... Yeah, that but moment had no... Like, there's no reason for that to be in the movie. <laughs> why is there a martial artist in, in <laughs> I don't the movie? Because it would be funny to racistly mock uh, him. Because ninjas were cool. This is post-Secret of the Ooze, Peter. Okay, okay, so, like, I get why, like... The why, three why ninjas lethal- kick back next year. So I get why Lethal Weapon Four is like, in, it, you know, it has Jet Li in it, and but the movie like culminates with like the movie's entirely about like, you know, Chinese people caught in the struggle between uh, you know Chinese gang and the cops, and and at the end of the movie like Jet Li and Mel Gibson and 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 uh, and um, Danny Glover have like a big fight. Like this, this isn't. It's just like a random martial artist in the middle of france in the 1600s just what 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 purpose is it serving like is she like an international femme fatale like has she also murdered a husband in china like i don't know i don't know what it's supposed to be implying uh yeah that ninjas are cool and racist jokes are hip with all the kids that is Um, the path of least resistance now that you mentioned it yeah it's 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 weird i also like i know the answer to this is almost certainly uh it makes way more sense if you remember reading the book but uh the weird thing about him being a musketeer and also a legendary pilot pirate with a um reputation feels generously underdeveloped they just like he he is he's he says he's famous early on and then later on that pirate ship he goes are you porthos the pirate and everyone <laughs> runs away and he goes told you i was famous it's like what you're like you're like 30 and you've been a musketeer you're, when were you a pirate <laughs> like i honestly i honestly most, forgot like, the about king's it. bodyguards are like fine with having a pirate like a guy who who plunders and loots and <laughs> stabs people in the back and like everyone knows you're a yeah. pirate just seems like a bad idea for an elite bodyguard of the king i don't know i'm not hiring just feels bad. Uh, pirate Platt. Pirate Platt. Pirate Platt. Pirate. <laughs> um, it is while we're talking about pirates. It is funny though that like uh, a few short years later, I don't know, nine years later, um, Disney would figure out that Disney would figure out that like Pirates of the Caribbean was worth throwing like 150 million dollars and then 250 million dollars and uh, into. Um, and like that movie feels like it's delivering not to move us towards final thoughts, but that movie feels like it's delivering what this movie promises, which is like high adventure, uh, multiple parties clashing and like, uh, you know, some silliness thrown in, but like the plot is grounded in actual sort of stakes and drama. And, uh, you know, it, it solves the period problem by having a lot of the actors be British and the actors that aren't British, uh, 
worked on with with voice coaches on how to get like a sort of fun period pirate voice right like yeah th- those movies aren't all amazing the first one's really good though um those movies aren't really amazing but like the um the, the, the that feels like that's capturing what this movie wanted to do which is yeah, like this this like movie high needed adventure high curses. period adventure swords and swashbuckling and all of that but like have competent action scene, actual romance, uh, uh, women characters that matter, like all of that. Right. Well, actually, to kind of get into final thoughts, one thing I think that's really interesting about this movie that kind of ties back into how we framed up the month, you know, where we talked a little bit about the history of um, uh, Disney's live action attempts over the decades. And one thing that they really kind of hit pay dirt with in the 60s was classic literature adaptations. Um, And so you have stuff like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Treasure Island and Swiss Family Robinson. And, you know, how how much you still enjoy those movies today may just depend on your your nostalgia for them. I I probably can't watch them without nostalgia uh, blinders, even though I've seen them all relatively recently. But I, I still enjoy those really well. But one thing that those do a good job of is trying to legitimately adapt the source material into a compelling movie. They're not worried about um, like, let's throw some uh, it's the sixties. So we need uh, Kirk Douglas's character in 20,000 leagues under the sea to be like, um, you know, showing them rock and roll music for the kids. (laughs) Like they're, you know, they're, they're really just trying to do, let's do an adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And um, it makes sense that as Disney was trying to figure out how to like return to a live action renaissance, um, they went back to the well with animated movies of princess movies, princess animated movies, like uh, based on uh, fairy tales and f- folklore and stuff like that. That was their big success for the, you know, the 40s and the 50s for the most part. And when they went back to that well with uh, with musical fairy tale adaptations, they hit pay dirt. It makes a ton of sense as they're looking for what to adapt next. That they um, that they go back to live action literary classics. Uh, and this is actually the second one that they did. They did um, um, actually technically it's the third, although uh, they did an adaptation of uh, Kidnapped, which was. Um, uh, kind of a co-production that they distributed uh, in the United States with like a European studio and it uh, it bombed at the box office which is probably why you don't know that there's a 1990 kidnapped adaptation from Disney or never heard of it before but uh, they did White Fang um, with Ethan Hawke which does lean a little bit into let's get a hip young actor Ethan Hawke but I actually just rewatched White Fang um, about a couple months ago just with my uh, with my daughter and I was – that is a – it both sticks to the actual book pretty well uh, or sticks to the, the the idea of the story with obviously cutting it off to make a kid's movie and some of the less just random passages of how much Jack London likes dogs. Um, but it's like it, it doesn't try to be too hip or edgy. It doesn't try to add coolness to it. It just tries to make an adaptation for White Fang and it was a box office success. Uh, modest but a success. And it it holds up like it's it's still if it's it's a very enjoyable movie for kids and adults. And I think the mistake they made with Three Musketeers is as you get further into the 90s, White Fang was 91. 
they really try to do that thing that is such a eye rolling, uh, eye rolling thing for so many movies of the air was what if we do nineties hip and edgy, which as Rick rightly pointed out is not actually edgy or hip, it's just <laughs> or hip. And so instead of actually, I think, trying to just make an adaptation of The Three Musketeers, which I don't know if it would have been good or not, they tried to repeat the success of what almost feels like an unrepeatable success on accident, which was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but only half-assedly. And instead, I think, may have deprived us, as you mentioned, it has a great budget, the sets are great. Um, they definitely had the ability to what may make a compelling Three Musketeers movie. And instead, they just like they just made a um, trying to appeal to t- too much to kids that wanted to do uh, cool ass skateboard tricks and say Kawabunga or something like that. And they just made kind of a shitty and forgettable literary adaptation of a classic or movie adaptation of a literary classic. Which actually, you know, again, if you look at their history with these types of movies, they usually do a much better job of. And so I am I am a little bit disappointed that, well, not only did it not match my memory of it, which was a very, which was a good movie, um, <laughs> but also that it's like, I, I, I would have loved to see the, uh, the White Fang type Three Musketeers movie where you can go back and go, hey, you know. If I want to show my kids or just watch a fun uh, a fun uh, adaptation of Three Musketeers, you know, this is great. And instead, we just kind of got a trying to please no one and everyone and, and just kind of a, a turd. Or as or as Peter said, a huge sack of shit. Uh, Rick, Peter, what do you guys got? I mean, yeah, we're all on the same page. It's just kind of a – you said sack of shit. I would say it's just a, a wet fart of a movie. What fart is yeah. maybe more appropriate? Like, I don't think it, I don't think it's the worst movie I've seen, but it's it is like it is something where you're like, ah. Oh, well, I mean, something. I think one one thing that that I would add is that uh, you know we have this this vacuum at the center in Chris O'Donnell, which is which is um, probably a fatal flaw. But also, they could have just cut out some of the chasing and built up the individual musketeers. We kind of just like meet them and then. There's no, there's no real buildup of them or anyone, like you were saying with the the women characters. But also, they just have their one thing in this, right? Like Charlie Sheen has his piety, and Oliver Platt has his like lascivious wenching and pirate backstory, I guess. But it all just seems kind of random. And it's like if you don't have any investment in the individuals, there you never really get a sense that they're like fun to be around. And the whole point of this movie is that you want to be. That they should be fun to be around, you know what I mean? And uh, since they're not, it's just a bunch of running around on horses and Chris O'Donnell flubbing his lines. That's so pretty, pretty uh, forgettable spectacle. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just really quickly, Rick. Do you have um, any affection for some of those '60s Disney live action adaptations of literary classics, or even like a White Fang? Um, well. I grew up, yeah, I liked uh, Swiss Family Robinson a lot when I was growing up. Uh, we watched that one. What were the other ones you mentioned? I don't think I ever saw 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, really? I don't think so. I would I would highly recommend it. Um, Kirk Douglas is really great, and I'm now I'm blanking on who plays uh, Captain Nemo, but it's a shit. Pull it up. The other one says uh, Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. I like the book. The movies missed, passed me by, I guess. Four. Oh, James Mason played captain nemo okay 
It's good. I mean, I feel like a lot of those, like the uh, like boys' adventure kind of novels, were and their adaptations weren't stuff that I spent that much time on. It's kind of funny. I read one of the reviews, like Roger Ebert's. In fact, I think was uh, saying, you know, kids these days don't, you know, or like as any boy will know from the schoolyard, the names of the three musketeers. And I was like, we didn't really do that in the schoolyard. I mean, Roger went to a very different school. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's a I just saw the thing, movie. Yeah. I'm not sure of all their names. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I feel like, I, I feel like he probably like his generation would have known all the members of the three musketeers plus D'Artagnan, but like, uh, your generation, Rick, would have known all the Ramones. <laughs> In order of penis size, probably. Yeah. <laughs> the answer might surprise you. Click through the yeah. link, Rick. Click through the link. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Aaron, what are we doing to wrap up? Well, actually, Peter, what I'd like to do is thank, is thank Rick for being on the show. Rick, oh. thank you for being on the show. We- no, thanks. thanks for thanking me, Aaron. Yeah, I try. Yeah. Uh, Rick, I was going to thank you in a more intimate manner after this. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> after the episode? Well, nice. I was thinking more cards and roses, but now I have to have sex with you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, wear a mask. There's still a pandemic going on. Um, uh, uh, Rick, why did um, why did someone send you a dozen roses? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's that's so Peter wouldn't have to have sex with <laughs> And somebody in a I think it's a sausage casing with a bikini on it? No, don't look at those. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Molly's a lucky lucky lady. <laughs> um <laughs> she'll never she'll never she'll never hear this so, so no i mean the the best part about um the shows this is like uh no, our wives don't listen to this <laughs> yeah does your wife listen to your guest appearances uh yeah yeah does she like them does she like us because we don't know if our wives like us <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I would say she's a fan she, I don't think she would listen if I wasn't on, but you know that's how it goes. Oh well, that hurts a little more. Um, <laughs> any, I know you said you don't have much to promote except other appearances on this show, but yeah. uh, I will say that there's still a lot of fantastic writing on Luddite Robot that Rick has participated in, and that um, that uh, that uh, Liz, also former guest of the show, has written on too. So I would still refer mm-hmm. you to Luddite Robot. Even if uh, my choice between Rick writing on that and appearing on our show selfishly would be to continue just to appear on the show, I guess. <laughs> Anytime that we write him a note and leave it in his bedroom that just says, we love to watch, you know, <laughs> it's time to come guest on the show. I just pull, pull my tunic out of the fire. You know, fire what mo- yeah, you know what movie we're covering. No other information is required. <laughs> Uh, it's a lot of effort, though, to get those notes to you, so I hope you appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> Peter, we've referred to it many times. We do have one more. Uh, do you remember what it's called? Because you – this is actually the month of shit that Peter hasn't seen because he had never seen The Rocketeer. He'd never seen this. And you had never seen our final movie, which really kind of tracks, I think, the – oh, shit, maybe we're completely out of ideas – uh, because it's the next next couple years after this that you start getting the airbuds, you start getting the uh, uh, <laughs> you start getting the that darn cat remakes. That darn uh, cat. 
uh you you really just are like oh does a does walt disney in front of a live action uh preview mean it's gonna be a piece of shit um i think sort of that decline at least from the action genre is the next one although i think we're gonna have way more fun with it just because it is such a ridiculous movie i okay so um, also I, I i watched the trailer between when we started this month and uh okay and now and i i might have seen this movie as a kid so this might be an accidental nostalgia audit kind of thing um i think this is a movie i watched at a friend's house a couple times so uh, but i remember absolutely nothing about it I mean, I have not seen it. We had it on VHS. Uh, It was never one of those things I went back and purchased on DVD. So I have not seen it since, I don't know, 96 or 97 probably. But I I saw it. 96 or 1897 more like because we're going to Tall Tale. Tall Tale. The (laughs) unbelievable adventures of Pecos Bill, um, which is the colon to this. And I feel like that's super shitty because Paul Bunyan and John Henry are also in it quite a bit. (laughs) Um, the rather uh, believable tale of john henry (laughs) yeah he's just good at uh putting railroad track down yeah it's a railroad guy he did i mean paul yeah stuff with rocks and then people i i I believe i believe it has nothing to do with railroad tracks right no it's 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 like railroad posts he's really fast at it but isn't the machine going through the mountain and he's got to go through the mountain um John Henry he was just, a, John, I mean, John Henry was a steel driving man. That is, true. he was a steel driving man. Yeah, but yeah, I, he I puts steel posts, for- but I don't, I don't think he races a machine. Like he does race a machine that that puts posts into the ground. And then his his heart. Ex- Look, I got, I got to tell you, the problem here, Peter, is that unfortunately, much like the rest of America, America uh, folklore does not uh, give as much uh, adventure and excitement to people of color. Ah, jeez. Um, I know his heart exploded, which, like, stuck with me for, uh, you know, my entire life until now. I think that was what got me into horror movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I think he tries to... I think this doesn't happen in the PG Disney movie, where he teams up with Pecos Bill and Paul Bunyan. But, um, yeah, I, does his heart explode in the folklore? Yeah. Trying to race the machine? I Yeah, yeah that, I think that's right. Machine, his heart explodes. It's going too fast. Jesus. And he wins. I mean, I'm not surprised. But John Henry was well, a steel driving man. It's yeah. the only thing. Pecos Bill rode a tornado. Um, uh, yeah, but we're doing Tall Tale. Pete, uh, Rick, really quick, have you seen Tall Tale? No, I only saw that it existed uh, when I was looking up what Oliver Platt had done. Oh well, I think you should watch Tall Tale. Okay, I will. Um, and because it is insane. <laughs> That's uh, that. But we're joined that by. Sorry. loopy i know Um, i'm getting weird sorry uh we're joined by uh one of our favorite guests uh ethan warren uh who who has the dual role on this show of being a legitimate guest and uh forced to endure our biggest bullshit uh but this time we're just gonna be talking about tall tale the legendary adventures of pecos bill and that's it i guess sounds great uh, but for now, uh, all for one and all to bed. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Good. One for bed. I guess that would work better. When it's love you give,
Hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs>